from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. On the legislature today, criminal justice reform legislation. We'll have an in-depth report and follow-up conversation later in the program. But first, Emily Allen joins me for a brief news update. Thanks, Emily. Now, because we're coming into the last few days of the session, we're seeing numerous Senate bills now getting a vote on in the House and numerous House bills getting that vote in the Senate. So we're gonna start in the House for a Senate bill update. And this is Senate Bill 583. This is creating a program to further the development of renewable energy sources. We've been, uh, it's been called the Solar Bill and it's been supported by the West Virginia Commerce Secretary who has testified that uh, outside companies want to see a state with a portfolio, an energy portfolio that includes those renewables. Um, it was up for a vote today in the House and a lot of opposition we heard. Tell us what first what the bill does. Yeah, um, so the bill, it requires the Public Service Commission to kind of create a framework. The Public Service Commission is the group in West Virginia that regulates these utilities. So it creates a framework where uh, large utility companies to, you know, uh, specifically would be able to develop um, a solar panel program, you know, to a certain capacity. Um, and they would be able to recover the, the costs that they spend on that by charging uh, rate payers an additional 18 cents a month. Um, there was a little bit of a, a hassle over that number today, and um, I think it is worth mentioning that once that cost is recovered, you know, the utilities would actually absorb it. They wouldn't keep charging that 18 cents increase. Um, but I, I mean, the, the vote did happen uh, rather overwhelmingly. There was still a fiery debate. You're about to hear from three delegates from that debate. That's right. We're going to first hear from Delegate Patrick Martin, Republican from Lewis County. Then you'll hear from Republican Daryl Coles, Speaker Pro Tem from Morgan County, and then Delegate Rodney Miller, Democrat from Boone County. One of the provisions that they had put in over in the Senate was specifically saying um, that no provisions in this article um, of this section shall displace any current levels of cold fire generation. And I just don't know how that's just simply possible. When you can't, um, our first facility is not to new customers, it's, it's, it can also be to existing customers. So what in, in return you're really doing is, is you're increasing, um, you're actually decreasing the amount of coal, but then you're guaranteeing those energy um, productions being bought off of these coal and natural gas facilities, which in turn raise up your prices even way more. This helps business retention and attraction to bring new investment, additional private investment into West Virginia, new jobs into West Virginia. As we've heard, those companies would like to have a mix of energy that they can use in their operations. That's what they want. I think this bill is good for coal. I agree with my friend from the 56th. It is not just not bad for coal. This bill is good for coal. 
We've got to stand for development where it is desperately needed. And where I come from, it's de most desperately needed. I've had conversations with the Secretary of Commerce who, uh, while we didn't get into specifics, that folks have walked away from the table because they couldn't put that, that, that green energy stamp from West Virginia on that. And so, Emily, the remarks went on for quite a while. What happened? Uh, in the end, the bill did pass, um, and it, it was amended, so I, I can't recall the website. It might go to the Senate, but I mean, the, the amendments were pretty uh, minor, so I mean, it might, it, it will end up in the governor's desk, uh, we, we've heard. Um, it was, I think, it, it passed overwhelmingly with just a little bit more than 20 people opposed. So, a lot of debate, but again, overwhelmingly passed. All right, now over in the Senate, uh, you've been following House Bill 4780, and that is permitting county boards of education to offer an elective in the instruction on the Bible. Now, there was a similar bill in the Senate, uh, Senate Bill 38, that was amended by Senator Stephen Baldwin of Greenbrier County. He put in language uh, to the expand Senate it, committee. Uh, Senate, Senate Judiciary Committee, Senate Judiciary Bill 38. But uh, go on, Baldwin did make a similar amendment. It, it, yes, it, it it was very much like what that what the House bill is is what is what I was trying to say, probably not too well. But um, Senator Baldwin in the Judiciary expanded it, uh, got an amendment passed that um, included language that this would become um, not just a instruction on Bible, on the Bible, but a comparative religions kind of course. Um, so, and, and that passed overwhelmingly yeah, in the it passed, Senate. Uh, you know, the, the Judiciary Committee, even the, the sponsor of the bill at the time, uh, Senator Mike Azinger, Republican from Wood County, uh, supported it. And then it moved on to the Senate where it, the bill passed unanimously. Um, I think what you're about to get at is that a similar attempt was made to amend the House bill, and that actually didn't work out. So now that the House bill is in the Senate, and we have talked to a few senators, they're pretty sure that the House bill is the one that is going to leave the legislature since the Senate bill uh, has two committee references. It, it's not going to, it hasn't moved. Um, so they did deny that amendment today from Senator Stephen Baldwin, who we're about to hear from. The point is to be broad and inclusive. Um, and not name specific texts, but to name sacred texts generally. We did so, and that passed this body 34 to nothing six days ago. It was the right thing to do. I think that's why it passed the body 34 to nothing. Uh, and I'm hopeful that we're going to have support for it again. If the intent of the bill is to promote religious literacy, then we have to do so in a broad way that allows um, the perspective of various religions to be included. You can't promote one religion and promote religious literacy. And what happened there? Yep, so the amendment failed. Um, the House bill, as was the House bill, will be on third reading in the Senate tomorrow, and if it passes there, I, I believe it does go to the governor's desk. And that is exclusively an elective to, um, for instruction Yeah, it's like Bible. four options, yeah. All right, thanks, Emily. Now I'm gonna ask you to, to stay right there because Emily will be speaking with the Secretary of the Department of Military Affairs and Public Safety, but first her report on bills this session to reduce the number of people incarcerated in West Virginia and efforts to remove the barriers those who were incarcerated face when searching for housing and employment. Record expungement, a system to reinstate revoked driver's licenses, a nearly automatic process for parole in eliminating unfair bail practices, 
These efforts are among those the West Virginia legislature has been working on when it comes to criminal justice reform. At a gathering on Monday for the formerly incarcerated and reform advocates, speakers pointed out the topic isn't new at the Capitol. I have seen amazing changes. I've seen um, us coming together and to work on legislative uh, bills and things that have impacted us. So who am I? Well, I'm a formerly incarcerated individual. I spent 15 years in prison. I was a drug addict, unemployable, and have made many horrible choices. I have recently celebrated my 10 years out of prison with my lovely wife. John Schott chairs the House Judiciary Committee. He's a Republican from Mercer County. He says overcrowding has been on his radar for the last 10 years he's been in the House of Delegates. There have been studies in the past that basically have rated us very poorly in, the, in the, this consistency and disparity among our sentencing process. So I think we need to, to finish that. We certainly need to continue to focus on ways that we can uh, help people get back on track after they've completed their sentence or, or to uh, provide other, other ways by which they can be held accountable besides incarceration. On Monday, there were 5,200 people in West Virginia's regional jails and prisons. That's almost 1,000 over capacity. More than half of the people there haven't been convicted of a crime because they haven't had a trial yet. Typically, this is because they can't make bail. House Bill 2419 reforms bail requirements, so some of these so-called pre-trial inmates can wait for trial outside. That bill was still waiting for the Senate Judiciary's consideration Tuesday morning. House Bill 4004 creates a state sentencing commission to reevaluate how long West Virginia laws are keeping certain people behind bars. That bill also waits on the Senate. I just think it's, it's gained momentum over, over time as more and more people realize that it's a problem we just can't incarcerate our way out of. We have to look at alternative sentencing arrangements really focus on putting away the people we're really scared of and not just the people that we're afraid or that we're mad at. Part of what Schott is talking about goes beyond getting people out of prison faster. It's about eliminating some of the barriers they face when seeking employment. Brittany Wolf and Shatara Stroman both work at the Ray of Hope Recovery Home in Charleston. Both have previously been incarcerated. West Virginia came out with the Second Chance Bill, which helps people um, non when they do not recommit crimes to get their record expunged. This is Wolf. A list of crimes that were eligible, um, nonviolent crimes, basically the ones that were not eligible were sex related crimes or ch child related crimes and violent. But they also included burglary or conspiracy to commit burglary, which um, is my conspiracy to commit burglaries, but I was charged with. Wolf says she's faced stigma finding gainful employment because she can't get her records expunged. Jobs that made minimum wage I wasn't eligible for because I was a convicted felon. And I would go through, um, you know, I would research first and see if they would hire convicted felons. And a lot of places would say, you know, felon friendly, they have that list. But a lot of those places are not felon friendly. And so I'd go through a whole interview and then they would tell me, we can't wait to have you on, you're definitely hired. And then they'd say, well, we have to do a background check. Is that okay? And I'm, I'd be like, that's fine. I'm just going to go ahead and be honest with you, you know, a little bit about my past so you're not, you know, thrown off when you get it and I can give, have a chance to explain myself. And after that, they would be completely shut off to me and then I wouldn't end up getting the job. And, um, 
you know, that hurts. And especially when you know you're not the person that you were then. The House passed an amended expungement law this week, adding burglary as an eligible crime that can be erased from one's records. Delegate Mike Pushkin is a member of the Judiciary Committee. He's a Democrat from Kanawha County. There's always uh, things to look at to improve or, or build up. Like last year we passed the, um, the expungement law and, and, it, and we combined that with the Jobs and Hope program in order to get people uh, the help they need, whether it's drug treatment or, or job training or both. And we found that there were some problems with that bill uh, and we've gone back and addressed those this year. So there's always you know, things to go back to and, and to improve. But I am really glad that there has been a bipartisan effort to remove the, the barriers to employment. Stroman at Ray of Hope says she was rooting for updates to the second chance legislation this session. It's a great opportunity for those of us to, you know, be able to drive. But for me, I have DUIs and I'm not eligible for the second chance. Stroman says she's been without a legal driver's license from the state of West Virginia for 16 years due to DUIs. It has hindered me from just participating in life. Um, and where I came from uh, before Charleston in Berkeley County, we are not, um, we don't have access to public transportation. I live in a rural area. Uber is not provided there. So what happens is I'm hindered from um, obtaining work to be able to get to work. Uh, my children, you know, and their functions. So, you know, you're dependent on friends, family, spouses to ensure that you get to where you need to go. Here in Kanawha, um, we're provided Uber, we're provided public transportation, but still, um, I believe that if you're in long-term recovery, you've paid the needed uh, fines that you should uh, be eligible for that privilege to drive. Although second chance legislation didn't address Stroman's driving under the influence charges, one proposal, Senate Bill 130, could. This bill is in the full House of Delegates for consideration after passing both the Senate and the House Judiciary Committee. It revises the way licenses are suspended for driving under the influence. House Bill 4958, which recreates a payment system for people who otherwise would lose their licenses to the inability to pay court fines, is in the full Senate for reconsideration. Several bills dealing with criminal justice reform are in the final phases now. Bills had until today, Tuesday, to officially leave committees and hit the floor. I'm Emily Allen. Joining me now is Jeff Sandy, Secretary of the West Virginia Department of Military Affairs and Public Safety. Um, thank you for being here. Really quick, we did just want to say uh, in the package we had mentioned there were 5,200 people in West Virginia's prisons and jails. That's actually just uh, the regional jail, so apologies for that. Um, getting started, thank you so much for being here. I, I think I do want to start with um, for people or viewers that might not be familiar with your department and specifically the department or the Division of Corrections and Rehabilitation in your department, um, what are some of the rehabilitation efforts and things going on right now to prepare people in incarceration for what happens next after they get out? Currently, we have over 250 type avenues for inmates to achieve their goals when they leave our system. They can get an associate's degree, they can get a bachelor's degree in all kinds of different trades from woodworking, plumbing, welding, etc. So 250 uh, items are available. Sure, and I know substance use uh, disorder is you know, a prominent problem in our state. Obviously, we talk about it all the time uh, mm -hmm. in our facilities. Um, we've heard some about the GOALS program, but can you kind of go on to what, what that is and what it does? Right. 
2017, we needed to come up with a plan to address individuals who were not a violent offender that had drug problems. And, but in addition to go deeper, that drug courts was not working for them, they needed an environment where it was structured. So we started the Goals Program, and the Goals Program started at Western Regional Jail, and now we have it uh, at- And that's in Cabell County? In, uh, yes, okay. in uh, Putnam County, I'm sorry. Putnam County, okay. And now we have one in Moundsville, and our goal is to have them all over the state. And what that program is, it's a structured, we address the inmate, their health, their diet, and their, the way they think about things mentally. Peer pressure is one of the key items that we work on because these individuals, they go out, they're free, they're working, and someone comes, I'll just try it. And we tell them that this is not the avenue to take. So the program, the defense, their defense attorney, the prosecutor and the judge, all three have to agree for them to enter the program. The program is a minimum of six to nine months and they are trained on how not to get involved in drugs again. After the six to nine months, they go back to the sentencing judge and he can reduce uh, their incarceration from two to 15, three to 15, or even more to the time served. To date, it has saved West Virginia counties over a million dollars in their regional jail bill. Hmm, that's interesting. And I mean, speaking of the cost to counties and the cost to the state, um, mm -hmm. during all these judiciary meetings we've had in the legislature this year, one big reason for criminal justice reform has been overcrowding. Mm -hmm. And you know, because overcrowding isn't just a problem of too many people in a facility, it's expensive to the counties and expensive to you guys. Um, so I just, you wanted to mention that's something that we've been hearing a lot of, and that's kind of what's prompted this legislation to get more people out. Um, the legislature is starting to kind of reconsider, um, you know, who needs to be in there and for what lengths of time. In our package, we had mentioned House Bill 4004 um, that is supposed to go to the Senate Judiciary Committee. There's talk about it coming up tomorrow. House Bill 2419, uh, dealing with bail reform, is going to be on the Senate Judiciary Committee tomorrow. I, I want to take a step back and ask about um, some parole reform efforts. Mm -hmm. There was a Senate bill um, that has gone to the governor's desk. I think actually uh, had he, he signed it or he's about to, mm -hmm. um, relating to um, parole. And it's something that your department would enforce. Can you talk a little bit about what parole is like now and, and what changes that would impose? Absolutely. Today, we have over 2,800 inmates who are eligible for parole in the next 18 months. The parole board is, we have, is nine individuals. And as you can tell from the math, it would be almost impossible for them to hear all these parole hearings. So presumptive parole has been developed. And what that does is if an individual meets various requirements, and it's important to note, it is a non-violent offender. Mm -hmm. This is, does not, uh, if you're a violent offender, you're a rapist, a child molester, a murderer, et cetera, this is not for them. But these non-violent offenders, if they meet certain requirements, they are eligible for parole and they do not have to appear in front of the parole board. 
And I do want to ask off of that because there has been a, a bit of a concern. We're uh, talking about getting these people out of these facilities, but not really about what waits for them afterwards. So you did talk at the beginning about some of the rehabilitation efforts ongoing in the facilities. But um, what kind of system or infrastructure is in place or will be in place for people um, who meet the requirements and are entered on uh, presumptive parole? Well, the key is this. An individual four years ago that was released in the time of need, we call it the trigger effect. And that trigger effect is they could be in line just trying to get their driver's license. They stress out and they, and they reach out and they want that drug. We have life coaches for them. We have way- Outside the facility. Outside the facility. The, uh, the parole, uh, the parole uh, people that come out to visit with them, rather than they encourage them to succeed. And uh, we had an individual uh, recently who uh, has been paroled and he got a job at $65,000 a year working in trade. So it's, we, we are doing everything we can to make people successful when they are released from us. Sure, and I mean, we have our producers kind of waving off the time, so I'm afraid it's time to go, but thank you so much for your time and your remarks. Next, we meet the Senate clerk and the House clerk who do some heavy lifting here at the Capitol. Randy Yowie reports, this week is crunch time for the clerks. And Senate Bill 846 requiring hospital publish notification prior to facility closure regarding patient medical records. Meet House of Delegates Reader Joe Koval. During floor sessions in chambers, it looks like House Clerk Steve Harrison, Senate Clerk Lee Cassis, and their staff members simply read the bills and take notes. But that's just the tip of a voluminous workload iceberg. Our main duties during session are processing the bills and doing the daily journal, keeping the paperwork working, uh, keeping the paperwork moving, and there is a lot of it. Cassis says his veteran team keeps all the records, handles information technology, at the facility and personnel managers. And forget Publishers Clearinghouse, both teams publish volumes of records and materials on an annual and daily basis. There's thousands of records that have to be ready and prepared for the next day, so they're here a long time. They, um, they do it without the cameras on them. They're working behind the scenes and make everybody around here look good. Assistant Senate Clerk Kristen Canterbury has more than two decades of experience here. Canterbury says the volume of bills has never been higher, but the advance in technology means staffers don't have to stay until 3.30 in the morning and be back at 7 a.m. anymore. Over the years, the workflow has improved to the point where it's rare that that I'm not leaving at least by midnight, which is a huge improvement. <laughs> Steve Harrison, a former high school, college, and semi-pro football player, knows his X's and O's and compares his clerk team to the O's, as in a string of tough offensive linemen. So unfortunately, usually if they're noticed, it's because of something that went wrong. You know, just like a, an offensive lineman, you don't generally get noticed unless you uh, have a penalty or miss a block or something. For many decades, before Lee Cassis became Senate clerk, former senators of the majority party were chosen to man the clerk office helm. But in 2018, by unanimous vote, Lee Cassis was elected clerk, a nonpartisan, richly experienced staffer. Most of the members here knew me from that, and they, and they knew they could trust me, that I was here to do the job, and no political funny business out of me, nor the staff in the clerk's office. So. First be referred to the Committee on Finance, respectfully submitted Chandler Swope, Chair.
Cassis says a colleague's illness forced him into clerk reading. Several years of reading later, he still remembers some sound advice. His tips were never eat peanut butter or chocolate before you go out there because it'll choke you up. And if you don't know a word, just mumble over it and keep going. The Committee on Health and Human Resources has had it in consideration Senate Bill 830. No mumbling from House Reader Joe Coble, who started in the House of Delegates back in 1981 as the IT guy who helped commandeer the then new voting and sound systems. At that time, there was nobody here who was technical enough to look after that equipment, so I volunteered to do that during the sessions. The Committee on Education has had under consideration Senate Bill 723 requiring Department of Education develop Vietnam veteran Colville began reading for the House in 1995, a natural for a language major with a BA in Spanish, a minor in French, and a love of articulation at 25 years and counting. I would like to be the reader in a cigar factory because I like to read to people. I like to read to my kids, which I did. And, and, for, and you do it so much, pretty soon the words go from your eye to your mouth. There's no intervention by the brain. You know, it's just like that. Occasionally you have to use your brain for difficult things. But when you do that so long, it's just in and out, in and out, in and out. After the 60-day session, no, they don't go to the Bahamas for the next 10 months. There are hundreds of bills to process and get to the governor and all those journals and publications to print. That generally takes us the rest of the year. Then it's time to start again when a new session begins. I'm Randy Yoey for the Legislature Today. Tomorrow on the Legislature Today, we'll have an update on the House of Delegates budget and the interim chancellor of the Higher Education Policy Commission will be our guest. I'm Emily Allen and for everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us and have a great evening. Thank you.